Well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Redemption Church this morning. My name is Reggie, um, one of the pastors and elders here at Redemption, and um, I was not supposed to be up here this Sunday morning. Um, over the last few days, uh, the elder team uh, have had the opportunity to be away on a retreat and uh, to spend some time praying together, evaluating the last year of Redemption Church, and uh, looking ahead over the course of the next year as to what God would have for us and um, things that we should focus on over the next year and, uh, and stuff like that. And it was an excellent time away. Um, Brent and Wes uh, are still away with their wives. Uh, ben and I are back. We drove back this morning. Our wives are still uh, away as well. They should be coming back later today um, to Augusta. But we had a Acts 29 church planter who was going to fill in for us this morning. He's out of Greenville, and uh, unfortunately, he had a death in his family earlier this week. And um, so on Thursday, uh, I think I got tagged as being responsible to come back early um, and handle this this morning. So um, unfortunately for you guys, you got me this morning. I also know that I'm competing against the World Cup. So if anybody's watching it on their phone... I might ask you what the score is in just a little bit. So, but anyway, we've been moving through the series of Acts, I mean through the book of Acts for the last several months, and we still have a few weeks ahead of us to work through the book of Acts. This morning we're taking a break from that um, simply because we expected somebody else to be preaching, and so uh, I had uh, a pocket sermon, a sermon ready to go. Um, so we'll, we're going to look at something from the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 8. And, uh, and we'll get there in just a second, but I'm going to pray for us, and then, and then we'll keep going. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that even though life uh, sometimes throws us curveballs and, and things happen, God, thank you that you're still sovereign, you're still in control, and you still have something really good for us this morning. And so, God, I pray that we would hear from you this morning. I pray over the next few minutes that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. Holy Father, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but your words are of utmost importance. And so, God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that Jesus would be glorified and lifted high, that we would be drawn to you and changed because of Christ. And Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Amen. So as we get going this morning, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever had an experience where the expectation of a certain event, a certain thing, was vastly different than the way that actually played out? Um, maybe it was a trip. Maybe it was a class that you took, uh, a movie that you went to see, a date that you went on. Your expectation of what was going to happen didn't match up with reality. Um, last fall, uh, Amy and I and my two girls, Natalie and Laurel, we were in Savannah for a conference. I was at a conference in Savannah, and one day we decided that we were going to go out and kayak from Tybee Island to Little Tybee Island, which doesn't seem like that far. Um, so we rented some kayaks, and uh, Amy and I have kayaked a lot in our lives, so it, it's not that we were scared um, to go out on the ocean, but there was already a little bit of fear there because we're taking our girls out in kayaks. And so we start going and going across the channel from Tybee to Little Tybee, 
and we get out in the waves, and we realize these waves are like way more than we anticipated. So we're cutting through the waves, and, and they're crashing on the top of the boat. And I'm starting to get a little worried um, because the kids are in the boat, and there's a certain point where you have to go sideways with the waves and turn to go into Little Tybee. And uh, we did, and waves were just crashing over into the boat, and uh, I was scared. I'm not going to lie to you. I was scared. So we finally got turned, and we went into Little Tybee, and uh, we had expected to kayak over there and spend the day on the beach and let the girls look for shells and do all this other kind of stuff, and there was no beach. It was just gone. It was just water um, because the tide was so high and the waves were so big. And so the whole trip took us like four hours to get out and get back, um, scared out of my mind. The girls never got to play on the beach, never got to collect shells. We never even got out of the boat. And so the event, the trip certainly didn't play out like we expected it to. It was a great memory, but it certainly didn't play out like we wanted to. In the book of Matthew, what we see happening over and over and over uh, this happens in the Gospels, actually, but specifically, like I said, we're looking at the book of Matthew. We see this over and over, that Jesus is calling his followers to be like him. The words that we use today, uh, people, are, people is calling, calling his followers to be disciples. That's what we talk about a lot. That's the words in Scripture, that Jesus is calling us to be more like him. And here at Redemption, when we talk about discipleship, we talk about disciples, we talk about people who are increasingly submitting every area of their life to Christ. And so we see this over and over in the Gospels, Jesus calling people to submit every area of their life and changing their expectations as to what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so the natural response, though, would be to ask, what gives Jesus the right to call us to follow him? What gives Jesus the right to call us, to call the disciples in the book of Matthew, what gives him the right to call them to submit every area of life to Jesus. Why should we be increasingly submitting every area of life to Christ? Matthew chapter 8 is where I, where I said we'd be if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Uh, these are the first set of verses we'll look at. We'll look at some more in a second. But Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, I'm pretty sure when these guys came to ask Jesus this question, that was not the response they expected. Uh, Jesus directly challenges their expectations, even though we don't hear a lot about what happens after Jesus says these things. Jesus directly challenges their expectation, even as he calls them to submit every area of their life to him. And the fact that Jesus is challenging their expectations is, a, is, 
is a good reminder for us here that oftentimes when we have expectation about what it means to be a disciple or expectations about what it means to follow Jesus, those expectations are probably built in our own image rather than in what Christ would have for us. And so the first man who approaches Jesus is a scribe. He's a professional teacher, scholar of the law, scholar of the Old Testament, scholar of uh, Jewish law. And he comes to Jesus and he makes a sweeping statement of commitment. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And consider Jesus' answer here. He doesn't go, wow, I'm really blown away by your commitment. Thank you. What Jesus does is he says, or he looks into the man's heart. He, he, He looks past what's being said. He goes straight to the point that this guy probably doesn't know what he's signing up for and what he's saying. And he says, do you even realize that I don't have a house or a room or a bed? And you're going to follow me wherever I go. Do you even know what you're saying? We don't know how this guy responded. But what we do know is that Jesus moved past his words to get to his heart, to flip his expectations upside down, to help him understand what it meant to submit every area of life to Christ. This guy was excited about following Jesus, but maybe, just maybe, his motives were off. Maybe, just maybe, he didn't get what he was saying. He was excited about the idea of discipleship, just like we can be, but he wasn't prepared for the reality of what it meant to submit every area of life to Christ. Having a home And a a place to lay your head is obviously not a bad thing. But the point here is that a true disciple must be ready to let go of even the most basic things like security if Jesus calls them to do so. Jesus calls us to submit every area of our life to himself. And Jesus moves past this man's words right to his heart and says, hey, this, this right here, are you really ready to submit this thing? To me, because that's what it means to be my disciple. Nothing at all, even a place to live, as good and appropriate as that is, that could not have greater authority in the life of a Christian than the authority of Jesus. And we'll get to that authority in just a minute. And that's part of what gives Jesus permission to call us to follow him is the authority that he has over everything. Right? That's the reality of following Jesus, that nothing, no matter how good and appropriate it is, can have a place of greater authority in our lives than Jesus. Over the past few weeks as we've been moving through the book of Acts, just backing up for a minute, we've talked a lot about idols because it's all in the book of Acts. But anything, anything in our life that would take greater authority than Jesus does is an idol, and idols just serve to harm us. And so let me ask you the question. The reality of what Jesus says to this guy is, I'm going to move past your words, I'm going to get to your heart, and I'm going to call you to submit even the most basic things to me. And so if Jesus says that to us as his disciples, if he's calling us to submit every area of our life to him, are we willing to hear and obey Jesus wherever he might call us? Are we willing to lay down our comfort and security? Do we really believe that Jesus has that right? 
that he should be able to ask us to give up our sense of security and control. Right? Are we ready to follow Jesus into self-sacrifice and to, desire, to die to our own desires and to our own dreams? Are we willing to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus? Are we willing to die to ourselves to follow Jesus? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves to submit every area of life to Christ? The reality of following Jesus is that sometimes it is difficult. And yet, Jesus still calls us to submit all areas of our life to him. And Jesus isn't in the business of meeting us on on our own terms. His authority in our life means that he gets to set the agenda, not us. And our expectations in the process of submitting every area of life to Christ are sometimes what gets blown to the wayside, and they should, especially when we make our expectations without an understanding of what Christ has called us to. The second guy who approaches Jesus here is a disciple. Uh, What it means in the context of this passage is that he's probably someone who has been following Jesus around, listening and watching what Jesus is doing. And he comes to Jesus with a request to be allowed to follow him after he deals with some other stuff. Right? And if you just read it quickly, uh, the story might make it seem like Jesus is being insensitive because he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, as though he doesn't care about this man or his father. However, we know that if this guy's father had just died, he would be at home dealing with that already. And so it's not probably, it's probably not that, that, that his father has just passed away and he needs to go take care of family business. It probably is along this lines, that there was a cultural expectation that this man would care for his parents until they died. And saying that he needed to wait to bury his father was probably a customary way of speaking about fulfilling his duty to his parents. And so what he might really be saying to Jesus here is, I can't follow you right now because I have something else that takes obligation Or this obligation over here takes precedence over me following you. He's putting in a request for an indefinite postponement, as one writer put it. He's coming to Jesus and saying, I have other responsibilities and duties, and whenever I wrap those up, then I'll come follow you. And again, Jesus goes directly to his authority in our lives. No matter how good and appropriate other responsibilities might be, They cannot come before submitting every area of life to Christ, even the good responsibility of caring for a parent. Being a disciple means that Jesus' call on our life takes priority over every other relationship and obligation. And the reality of that is that this is ultimately good for us. What the man in this story is actually doing is putting Jesus on hold He's saying, I can't be a disciple right now because of these other things. Because of these societal and cultural expectations, Jesus, I need to wait to follow you. Right? Consider that that same thing might exist for us today. 
that there are cultural and societal expectations that would get in the way of us fully submitting to Christ. Those expectations are sometimes culturally and societally defined. And as we pointed out over the past few weeks, like I said a minute ago, a lot of times they're nothing more than just idols. Money and sex and power and family and all these other things that take our submission away from Jesus and demand it in other places. Not that we're going to bow down at an idol of money, but that we might give it more priority in our life than we give Christ. The truth about idols is that they demand that you submit to them. But the reality is they will crush you under that weight. They will never bring you fulfillment. They will demand that you give everything to them and that you will become more like them, but they will only serve to crush you and never offer you freedom and never offer you fulfillment. The things that we value and pursue, like I said, are often the norms of our culture. But they cannot, in the life of a disciple, take precedence over what Jesus has called us to do. Because Jesus has called us to submit every area of life to him. And like I said, the reality of that is that that's good for us. Jesus put it this way just a few chapters later in Matthew 11. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The good news is that submitting every area of life to Jesus, the reason, part of the reason that Jesus calls us to submit every area of our life to him is that with that submission comes great Freedom and rest and peace. Whereas when we sell out to something else, it only brings oppression and a lack of peace. It brings fear and anxiety instead. And that's why we submit to Jesus, because it's good for us. Hear this from me. Let me make this clear before we move on to examine the next few verses Following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, heeding his authority, heeding his authority. These are not means by which we get acceptance from God. Jesus paid the full cost of our salvation at the cross and he offers it freely to us. Jesus secured that for us. Jesus offers it to us. We don't earn it. But on the flip side of that, following Jesus probably isn't going to look like we think it will. But that doesn't mean there's a problem with Jesus or with his offer of salvation. That means there's a problem with our expectations. And Jesus is in the business of overturning our expectations. Matthew 8, 23 through 27, if you want to look there, there's a story that occurs right after this that we just looked at. It's a pretty familiar story. Um, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? How many of you guys have had the experience of being seasick? Anybody? It's a terrible feeling. I've had the experience a few times in my life. I don't get the concept of being asleep on a boat in a storm. It makes no sense to me me because when that occurred to me, I was physically sick on the side of the boat. But Jesus is asleep on the boat. The disciples are scared of the storm, so they come to Jesus and they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And so Jesus gets up and he calms the storm, and then uh, Matthew's here phrases it as they marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? In the book of Mark, it says that they were terrified after Jesus calmed the storm. Marveled, they were terrified. But here's the question I have, is what did the disciples think was going to happen? Why did they go and wake up Jesus? I don't know what they were thinking. Did they think that Jesus was just going to like share in their fear and anxiety for a moment? They obviously knew to go to Jesus because Jesus could do something. But then they were terrified and they marveled that Jesus did exactly what only Jesus can do. Tim Keller says this, that he says they were terrified because they realized that Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power, and they obviously couldn't control it, and that's why they go to Jesus. But Jesus has infinitely more power, so they had even less control over Jesus. Right? None of us want to give up control. None of us want to let things happen without us having some say-so in what goes on. Uh, that's a frightening place to be. Keller goes on to say that there's a huge difference between a storm and a person because a storm doesn't love you. A storm is going to wear you down and destroy you. And and we all know what that looks like. We know what it looks like when uh, a storm comes through. If you remember what happened even in Houston last year, when water is on the move, there's no stopping it. It's frightening. There's no holding back the seas and the oceans and the waves. It's unmanageable. And Jesus even more so, but the difference is the storm doesn't love you and Jesus has infinite love for you. Have you ever stood and looked at the vastness of the ocean? This happens to me every time I'm at the beach, that at some point I'm standing on the beach and I'm looking out at the water and I'm thinking, this is really cool, this is awesome, this is beautiful, and then I get a little scared And I start thinking, what happens if the water starts coming toward me? What is going to happen? Where am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because I can't control it once the water starts moving. Nature is overwhelming. Its power is unmanageable. We see this all the time. But Jesus, even more so. There's no managing Jesus. There's no making deals. There's no coming to Jesus on our terms. Because even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. 
There's only a call to increasingly submit every area of our life instead. Right? Because Jesus' power is unbounded, but so is his wisdom and love and grace. Nature is indifferent toward us. But Jesus is filled with untamable love for us. If the disciples had really known that Jesus loved them, if they had really understood that he is both powerful and loving, if they had really trusted Jesus, if they had really feared Jesus more than they feared nature, then they would not have been scared. Their fault was not that they feared the storm. Their fault was that they didn't trust Jesus and trusted their fear and doubt more than they did Christ. Jesus, despite the fact that these men are trusting their fears, they're trusting their doubts, he meets them right where they are in the middle of great fear and great anxiety. That's something we all can relate to. We can't all relate to being in a boat with Jesus during the middle of a storm, but we can relate to fear and anxiety. And that's exactly where Jesus meets them. And like the scribe and like the disciple that that Jesus spoke to at the beginning of our passage, Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter. He, He moves past the outer layers of fear and misguided expectations and shows them the reality of who he is, the God of the universe that controls even nature. The reality of a Savior whose love and power and wisdom and grace is unmatched whose authority commands that we worship him, who calls us to submit all areas of life to Christ, even when our expectations are different than the reality that Jesus brings about, even when life doesn't look like we want it to, even when submitting all areas of our life seems uncomfortable. Right, as we bring this to a conclusion, let me just remind us that throughout the Gospels, Jesus takes the truth of who he is and applies it in ways that stand directly opposite to the expectations and the circumstances of the individuals that he encounters in Scripture. To the scribe, he says, your life's going to be hard if you follow me. To To the disciple who comes to him and says, let me wait, Jesus says, there can be no greater priority than me. To the disciples in the boat, Jesus makes it clear, there is no greater power There is no one to be trusted. There is no one else who can call you to what I'm calling you to but me. When Jesus confronts people with who he is, with the reality of the gospel, with the reality of what Christ has done for us and applies it to their life, some are fearful, some turn away, some repent and follow, some rejoice, some become aware of what is being asked of them. But it's rare that there's ambiguity. Because Jesus calls us to him on his terms. He calls us to submit every area of life to every area of our life to him. And that's really a non-negotiable for a disciple. Increasingly submitting every area of life to Christ. People, culture, movements, values, they all change. But Jesus, despite how unmanageable he is cannot be changed, and cannot be controlled. And that's why he gets to call us 
to submit every area of life to him. When Jesus calls us, he makes demands on our life that sometimes seem costly and personal. He overturns our expectation. He calls us to submit every area of our life to him despite the fact that we may value some things more than Christ, despite the fact that our society and culture tells us to to value some things more than we value Christ. But in submitting to Christ, in submitting, increasingly submitting every area of life to Christ, the result of that is infinitely more um, wonderful than we can even imagine. I'm reminded of the Chronicles of Narnia where one of the children in the story is talking about Aslan and he says, the child asks, is Aslan safe? And the response that he gets back is, of course he's not safe. He's good. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. That's what this story um, from Jesus on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples reminds us of. Jesus is calling us to submit every area of life to him because he's good, because that's good for us. That's what he's calling us to. He's good. And of course it may not be safe. But of course Jesus is good. And so as a result of what we've heard this morning, what is it that I believe Jesus is calling us to in this passage? I'll lay out three things for you. Number one, I would call you to lay down your expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. Because it probably doesn't look like you think it's going to look. I would encourage you to to put them aside. I would encourage you, secondly, to increasingly submit every area of your life to Jesus. That's what we talk about at Redemption all the time. That's what discipleship looks like. And the reason we do that is because Jesus is worthy and because what he offers in return is infinitely greater than what we get if we don't submit every area of life to Christ. So I wouldn't call you to Uh, Number one, examine your expectations and lay them aside. Number two, to continue to increasingly submit every area of life to Christ. And number three, I would encourage you to learn to trust Jesus more than you trust your fears and your doubts. The, The reality of the fact is that we often think our doubts and our fears are more real and more true than Jesus could ever be. But that's simply not the case. Jesus controls even the winds and the waves. He calms the storm literally for these disciples. And there's no way that their fear and anxiety can be more real and more true than the reality of what Jesus is and what he can do because he's the God of the universe. I call you to examine your expectations Lay them aside. I want to call you to increasingly submit every area of life to Christ because Jesus is worthy. And I want to encourage you to learn to trust Jesus more than you trust your fears and doubts. And that begins with the recognition, with the recognition that we often trust our fears and doubts more than we trust Christ. We're going to move into a time of uh, response, and here's what that looks like. Uh, in a second, the band's going to come back up here. And um, lead us in some more songs and give us an opportunity to worship through singing. During this time as well, there's an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back. 
um, where you can put your tithes and offerings. Um, you can continue to worship and respond uh, by staying right where you are, by praying, by reflecting on what we've heard this morning, by reflecting on the call that Jesus has on our life. Um, we're also going to take communion. Uh, we do this every Sunday at Redemption for this reason. We take communion to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it and that it's true. And so I would encourage you, um, if you're here and Christ gives you the freedom to do so, to come down these aisles on the side here, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And even as much as we're remembering the truth of the gospel, by participating, we're proclaiming that we believe it. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that you are infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more unmanageable than we can ever expect or know or realize. But God, thank you that Thank you that because you're good, what you have for us when we increasingly submit every area of our life to you is good for us as well. God, over the next few minutes as we continue to worship and respond, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. And Holy Father, we thank you for our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.